I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay. Confessions of the Cult Sisters. On our last episode, we began our conversation with Paul Kellerman, who was one of the brothers at our cult commune, Last Days Ministries. If you haven't listened to part one, you really need to pull that up and listen to it first. Today, we continue our discussion with Paul. And Sharon, this gets into the good parts of what it was like to be at Last Days Ministries. Oh, the juicy, juicy, juicy bits. The juicy (laughs) bits. So without further ado, here's part two. So, Paul, I've got a vague memory that your final days, your last days at Last Days Ministries, (laughs) had to do something with an outside relationship or something to do with leadership challenging you. I, I don't really remember. So, can you elaborate, please? Yeah, it did have to do with an outside relationship with a woman from a nearby ministry, the Agape Force. And uh, there was a woman that worked in a little shop there, a little like coffee shop. And we started a relationship. Her name was Rebecca. Yeah, we just started a relationship that was interesting in the beginning was the rules were different for both ministries. They were allowed to do any kind of communication with anybody at any level until they got into a relationship and then they dropped down the rules. Where at last days, it was the opposite. You couldn't talk to anybody until you were in a relationship, and then the rules laxed a bit. So we had to navigate that a little bit. And basically, things moved, I would say, rather fast. Wait, did so did you get permission before you started this relationship? I mean, permission from last day's leadership? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't remember that. I only remember when it became serious and people somehow heard about it or learned about it. I didn't hide it, but I don't think there was any rule that said I couldn't do this outside relationship. That was what that wasn't clear. Because yeah. mm. <laughs> the rules okay. were about the way you interpreted it. The rules were about the sisters inside the ministry, not applying to women outside the ministry. I guess technically that'd be true. Uh, I didn't really think about it. It just seemed like there was no reason not to mm-hmm. start the relationship. I, I didn't have any. I'm a I'm a rule follower. I think I have three PhDs in people pleasing by now, by then. <laughs> so, so and of course, I had, had the time in the Marine Corps. I was really good at doing what I think you're supposed to do. So yeah. there was a, at this point, I must have felt okay about it. But once it became, get, once it started getting serious, then the ministry leaderships on both, in both ministries got involved because, because okay. the agape force has a <laughs> lifetime covenant. Yeah. So wait, 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 wait. So for our listeners, there was a cafe called Grublets, which was based on a character from the Agape Force children's series. And they had the best brownies on the planet. And so many of us, that was like our one chance to go somewhere close and splurge, usually on limited free time that we had. And so I'm interested, I guess you had to check out a car to go because you had to drive. It was not, it was what we called down the road in East Texas, but down the road was several miles. So you had to have a car or a really good bicycle. Right. So you were going to Grublets regularly. Like how 
did you see her enough to even get in a relationship with ah. someone offsite with limited free time? Uh, yeah, good question. So how it got initiated was one of the brothers at Last Days Ministries informed me that there was this young lady that worked at Grublitz from the Agape Force that was interested in me. And I should just Ooh. go. I should go check her out. Yeah, which we, for the sisters, I don't think any of that kind of networking would have ever been allowed. So it, great that you had someone in your corner setting you up. A wingman, <laughs> huh? You had your wingman. <laughs> but it was the opposite to me initially. It was like, you can't say that. Don't tell me that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, at that, that moment, it definitely felt like a break of protocol. Hmm. Oh, okay. And in, in that initial moment. So, but after he, he just said, oh, just go look. What does it, what does it take? What does it matter? Okay, who, who was that? Tell me the first name. <laughs> who was it? We can cut it out, but we're both oh. wanting to know. Oh, Joe. Oh, oh, all right. It makes sense. Makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> we were okay. close. We were close because we swapped roles. He was the head of maintenance, and then I took over and turned into the operations right. department. So, so we we used to encourage each other in the Lord. We sit on a bed down at one of the houses where the couple lived. Somehow he was able to live down there at some point. So anyway, we had a relationship that made space for that, but it was out of the blue. Right. Right. It was out of the blue. So again, so I said no initially, and then he said, come on, just do it. So I did finally go down there. And... and Truth be told, my first look was like, not interested. Judging the book by its cover there, Paul, I, were you? <laughs> I, I did. I did. Well, because you, you have to do that initial scan because you, yes, you, you only do. get one bite at the apple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so I obviously I went back a second time and I had my own car, Tracy, to answer uh, your okay. other question. Yes. Okay. So I went down there a second time and I thought, okay, I'll let's just see what this where this goes. So she waited on me because she recognized me, of course. And then it just started with small talk and we just started a relationship. And I remember very little about what we might have done. I know at one point she was watching houses for some of the people in Silverwind. I think it was like Patty or Patsy, something like that. So when she was over there, she invited me to come over and we would spend time there. Actually, Rose and Dell came over once because I have a picture of Rose in the kitchen of that house. (laughs) So it wasn't in secret. And Dell wasn't, I don't think they were married. And Dell wasn't a leader yet, but Dell was, you know, they're part of the ministry. So it wasn't being hidden. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so things started moving along and it went really fast. And so we ended up having to have what I call the tribunal meetings where we were each grilled separately and apart by the different leadership of the ministries. And I think it was only Wayne and Martin. I don't think Melody was involved at that point, but it was Gabriel Rosamina and Tony Salerno from their place. Okay. And Tony Salerno is the founder and the head of Agape Force. The big wig. The big wig. And for those of you, I think on one of our podcasts, I'm not sure in which order, we talk about the area and Silverwind being the band that was part of Agape Force, Barry McGuire, who used to sing on a lot of the, the records. And so they were big movers and shakers in the area. 
uh, in the realm of especially children's music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Bullfrogs and butterflies. Mm-hmm. That's the one. Hey, Paul, so how, how many weeks or days or months was it, do you think, between when you first started dating or whatever you want to call it, spending time together, and then this actual uh, trial you had? <laughs> I, you know, I, w- I would be guessing, but I can't imagine it had been more than two months. Two months. Okay. Because when you, again, the ministry style at last days was as soon as you meet and, you st- and God says, okay, through everybody, then you're almost instantly engaged and then planning the wedding within a couple hours. Correct. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I think that's about the same speed that we were moving. Okay. So the intention, once they got involved, was that we would indeed get engaged and get married. So was the LDM leadership, were Martin and Wayne in favor and behind this for you? Yeah. At the end of the day, we got approval from both ministries. I don't remember exactly how we heard that. Okay. I don't know how we got that feedback, but I do remember what we did. What was decided is that we could get married, we could get engaged, and then she would come over to the ministry, go through ICT. After the ICT, then we could get married. Oh, wow. Okay. So Tony Salerno agreed to release her from her lifetime promise and vow of slavery to agape force. To agape force. Correct. So as I started digging in to the local ministries in the area, I did not know that that was a part of their covenant uh, to agape force. And that just seems like such a step too far that they had to sign. A little culty? A little culty, perhaps? Uh, extremely <laughs> culty. And ended up, again, the demise of Agape Force, you can go on. Maybe I'll post an article to our show notes that shows about when they kind of were coming to an end. Of course, it involved a scandal. Of course, it involved some unsavory you know, rights to who had rights to the music. And of course, it involved this lifetime covenant causing so much difficulty in um, how they were then dividing it up. And was it sexual so that, scandal there from the top in that one? I don't. I think it was financial, financial. scandal, from okay. what I read, because no one supposedly had the rights to these musics. This was God's music. And I guess from what I read, Tony Salerno did a deal where he ended up getting to leave with those rights, and it was uh, a scandal. So I did not know that you were impacted by, if you met someone at another ministry, how that would play out. That's crazy. Yeah, there wasn't wasn't a plan. There wasn't a mold. Right. So we, we were the trial balloon. So anyway, so we got we got the blessing and we were somehow we were at the ministry at last day's ministries and we went for a walk up the runway and I found a small spike of some sort, uh, like a, a rod. And I found a stone and on the right hand side of the runway, some few hundred feet down, whatever, I banged that into the ground as a stake to mark this minute and this hour that God has approved what it is we're about to do. Wow. And that, to me, it sounds like it's from that scripture where the children of Israel built kind of these altars of rocks, these stone. Right. Okay. Is that where you got that idea from? 
Right. The, I think they call them like the remembrance stones or whatever. You know, when you walk past here, you'll remember. But I, I think it was just more like putting a stake in the ground to just solidify and to recognize what had just happened so that if we ever had any question, we could walk back to that and say, no, at this moment, God said, mm-hmm. so therefore, that's what we're going to do. Did you get written up and in trouble for uh, damaging the runway property? No, I did it off to the side. I measured it. It was like eight feet, three inches was the the right of way. (laughs) Okay. I I didn't think about getting a bigger plane at any point. So anyway, Uh, (laughs) so so we had that. And then, I don't know, a couple of days, maybe a week at the most passed. And I realized that in some way, I was afraid of this commitment and I was not sure I really loved this woman. Mm. Yeah. I did not know that I really wanted to commit my life to her. And we had just gone through all of this and it just like landed on me like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is heavy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's this, this heavy and fast and whirlwind and there's all this pressure that if you're even going to start a relationship, you need to have prayed and you need to have heard from God and, and so, yeah, this culture of quick, quick, make a decision, make it happen. And there mm-hmm. is not room for questioning or even giving weight to your own personal desires and preferences because it's not about that, Paul. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of God. And, you know, we cover that in our purity culture episodes. What are the two reasons to get married, Sharon? <laughs> For the kingdom of God or so that you don't burn with sexual desire. desire. Correct. <laughs> and sin. And so there's so much control around that that you completely cut out the ability to get to know someone. Yes. So you're saddled immediately with this very heavy weighty decision that somebody you barely know, now you are making a commitment basically to walk down an aisle. So right. sadly you're feeling exactly how you should be feeling, but there's no space at the ministry to feel that. Correct. And Paul, you were probably one of the very few to have the courage Mm. to say, whoa, wait a second. Mm -hmm. That took a lot of courage. It took a lot of courage. Yeah. And both Sharon and I wish we had been in relationships where that element had taken place. Yeah. And so we understand the pressure that is mounting around Mm -hmm. you. I guess I would ask, so you're feeling that, which is completely understandable, but in this pressure cooker of a relationship, were you getting to know her at all? Because free time was limited. Yeah, very little. I mean, very little. It was only really Sundays and parts of Sundays, and she worked when they were there. So knew her very little. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. talking hours, right? As far as time together. So crazy. It's so crazy. crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. So like when you two shared your stories, when I listened to you on the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist broadcast, when you started talking about your stories, I just felt so in line with what you guys were feeling and you guys kept it to yourselves. And I realized in my story, I didn't, like you're pointing out. I took the step which was to tell one of the brothers there, Matt, that I was having questions about whether or not I can go through with this. Mm. 
And I don't know why Matt, I mean, Matt had been my leader in ICT. He came over to run the, the school after the crash. So I had some relationship with him, but this would have been a year, probably a year after that. But he was married, right? I think the rule was you had to share those things with a married group leader. Yeah, that's very possible. I don't remember the detail, but Matt is the person I went to. And the way I remember it, it felt like it was just within a matter of hours that I was called into Martin's office in the big building there. And he proceeded to basically uh, stripped me down. He told me that I was a sinner, that I wasn't a Christian, that I was going to hell, that I can't be part of the ministry. You can't go and see Melody anymore. You can't see Leonard Ravenhill anymore. You can't even talk to anybody here. I don't want you talking to anybody on this property. I want you just to to go away. I I want you to- I'm sitting here, Paul, with my, my jaw dropped open and speechless. I'm like- I mean, I've heard some stuff, but I have never heard that before. And how did it, based on what? Based on what was he making all these accusations? Whatever Matt would have said. What we want to ask you is, because we we are really trying to unpack oh, the more toxic parts of this environment, but... If you're just questioning and you're called in, was there any part that you were perceiving this was coming down on you versus these things specifically spoken? And I don't know how good your memory is on that, but. Oh, no, those are moments that are seared in my soul Mm -hmm. because I I had a dark night of the soul experience of about a week or so after that. So it rocked my world. Mm. And it, it was related to, somehow I knew it was related to what I shared with Matt because the framework would have been something about the relationship. That's the only thing that changed. And I had very little interaction with Martin there at all. So there was no no question. There was a direct line from me saying something to Matt about questioning whether I can go through with this. And then this instant, I mean, shockingly instant, uh, stripped of all responsibility of my Christianhood, of my manhood, so to speak, about everything about me was okay. We're gonna get we're gonna get specific, and we're gonna put you on the hot seat again. Go ahead. Did you confess any sexual sin to Matt in that conversation that you had with him? No, there was hardly any contact. I don't even know if we ever kissed. Yeah, that is. And I just wanted to clarify that also for the listeners, because that level of rebuke and being chastised in that environment would often come because somebody may have come forward with a genuinely, you know, earnest admission. You were young people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, spending time with each other. And so none of that was at play. Not a bit. You weren't confessing that you had crossed any of those boundaries. It was just... I don't know if this is God's will for me. And that was the response. That's It's hard to connect the dots on that. And well, very, very sorry okay, that you but, had to endure that. Yes. But if you think of kind of our extremist and elitist point of view, you know, we are the spiritual elite. We are hearing from God. Right. And... I imagine in his tribunal with the leadership, he would have been grilled and questioned, have you prayed? Mm -hmm. Have you sought God? Have you Mm -hmm. heard from God? Mm -hmm. And I would imagine there's also this thought of, 
oh my gosh, he has he has spiritually and emotionally deflowered this poor young woman, right? Because <laughs> there's so much weirdness in this whole betrothal thing. Right. And um, I would imagine that was some of the fucked up underpinnings of those kinds of outrageous, outrageous statements. So I wonder how much was embarrassment from one leader in front of another leader. Like Mm. we've made a special, whatever, concession for this. I will have to say this. I would say that there could have been other leaders that would have handled that very differently. That does seem to be one of the more extreme stories that we have heard out of handling a situation like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I am that's why it's it's really hard to connect those dots mm, because mm. how how can you navigate that kind of lifelong decision that you're trying to make and genuinely have questions and there's no known sin that anyone can point to and be treated with that degree is is pretty shocking. Yeah, it was it was again I I ended up having what I would call a dark night of the soul experience follow that. So it was be, it was mm. beyond, it was beyond shocking. But earlier in, in our conversation, we were talking about having relationships in the last days style. And remember I said, I knew that I wouldn't be good enough to hear from God and to know that it was you or her or them. And the worst part about that would be being uh, understood as not hearing from God. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is this is that I think this is that coming back where I said I heard from God to go through with this. The leaders of the ministry said they heard from God to go with this. Right. So how many how many of these situations within the ministry did you ever hear that got to that point and fell apart besides Bobby? And- of engagement. Yeah. Or we didn't quite get engaged. Or but- even a serious relationship. Right. right. That's what we would call them. Mm-hmm. Tracy, we recently heard from Julie. Yes. Hers was after Paul. That was after Paul. Mm-hmm. And they started their special relationship. And within a few weeks, they were both like, no, nope, this isn't this isn't <laughs> us. And uh, I think she said that I, I don't, you know, I don't even remember that. I do. So after Paul... There was that one. And then, of course, there was Melody Green. Right, right, with Bobby. Who had a very public one within the ministry. This was another engagement within the ministry that did not go forward. And so after Paul, there were two that I know of. But prior to Paul, you're right, there were very few marriages. The relationships, I would say, were even more weight was given to making sure that you hear from God so that you're not deflowering or um, not deflowering, but what's the, what's the spiritual <laughs> defrauding, term use defrauding, 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 defrauding. Yeah. Yes. But I will still contend that some of the stories that are coming out that are more extreme stories of spiritual abuse tend to involve Martin. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if another leader had dealt with that, I don't know that it would have been to the level of that kind of dressing down. That is, that is a really extreme version. Right. Yeah. Right. And and the part that to me was the biggest, in a sense, sin of it all was that in those instructions from Martin, I was never to contact that woman again. So. Mm. 
Again, here this woman is going to bed one night, knowing that she's going to be moving ministries and doing all this and having a relationship and getting married. And the next day, somebody tells her something and nothing ever comes for me. And I never get closure with her. My heart wasn't anything about her. This was about me. I would want to be able to say that, right? Because what can that do to somebody's mind potentially? Oh, yeah. Right? So so that was horrible. And and I'll tell you the, the life pattern that I see in that at times, especially in spiritual circles, is that when I decide to tell my truth, I get canned. I get separated. Let's let's clarify right? that. When I oh, Paul, finally, Paul, wait, wait. Go ahead. Yes. Not spiritual circles, religious circles. Self-righteous religious circles. Thank you. Yes, religious circles. That's right. When you don't fit in with the plan or you question the plan or have an issue or even a question about it, if you raise it sometimes or if you flat out say you disagree, then when you finally get back in contact with yourself, right, that's what that's what most religious systems are about, some way of you sacrificing who you are for some other goods, for something outside yourself. So you have to abandon yourself to be able to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. So when I reclaim these little moments, like when I reclaim this moment of true fear and concern and question about, can I go through with this? I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was going to mm-hmm. get counsel, support, right. whatever we can get together and we can work this out. But it was so immediate and so swift and so severe that I think that hurt more than any, it, it was a million times worse than anything her and I could ever, ever dream to do before yeah. we were married. Right. Yes. I, I was just, it's just devastating. And cruel, cruel to this woman who yeah. now you guys are in a situation where the, all those decisions have been taken away from you all are now being controlled. And I know there's mm-hmm. been a lot of conversation, which we won't get into as far as cult versus high control group, Mm -hmm. but this is so high control and invasive Mm -hmm. and spiritually abusive and damaging that there's no question about it because this isn't even biblical. This is not even a biblical recipe. This has so many pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, I'm just also going to say, you're right. It might've been dealt with a little bit differently in terms of tone if someone else had been doing the talking to Paul, but I can guarantee you that Martin, Wayne, and Melody were all united on this. It would not have happened mm-hmm. otherwise that way. So, I don't know that experience experientially to be true. Well, I know that the inner personnel stuff, the staff stuff, the big stuff like that, the marriages, the relationships, the who's staying, who's going, mm-hmm. that was the three together. Mm-hmm. That would not have been a unilateral thing. It would okay. not have been. You know, in telling the story as I have here, I think it's important to share that sometime after I left the ministry, Wayne Dillard came up to Daystar Ministry where I was and apologized and repented on behalf of the leadership of the ministry. Wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it it was important. And again, in the process Wayne was always open to me and loving towards me and I towards him. So 
It was like, it was more like a confirmation of who he was and who I was in the context of our relationship mm-hmm. that he would, from my perspective, even come up and do that. Mm. So let me finish the part of the story then. So I, you, I think someone was about to ask, how long was I there after that? Yeah. I think it was only a couple of weeks. I got instantly demoted. And, and so there was, but I was still at some point, I was still required to go to the, to eat and to the house meetings before the meal. And of course, one of them is the one where I was made to confess my sin in front of everybody. Okay. So before you were going to do that, were you clear on what that sin was? I know that there was a dressing down as far as all those things that were said, but was there no. anything specific? Like this is the sin that you've committed? No. And and I believe that I was very unclear about it uh, because of a conversation I just had with someone who was there. I just had a conversation with them a couple of days ago and they reminded me of what happened in the meeting where I was confessing. And he remembered my words. What were so they? So when you, when you were getting ready to go in and confess – did you have a plan? Well, wait, wait. Were you told ahead of time that you needed to confess in that meeting? Yes, yes. Okay, so now to Tracy's question, did you have a plan what you were going to say? Only, well, no. I, well, I must have had some plan, but what I said was all that I knew. And all I said was the leadership of the ministry has decided that I need to leave. Hmm. And at that point, Martin stood up, stared at Wayne, and said, are we going to let him keep talking? And I instantly went numb at that moment. And uh, he was looking at Wayne, and I'm up there thinking, what do I do? What do I, I was like, I'm stuck. I'm up here doing in front of these people, doing what I think I was supposed to do. There was no sin enunciated. I was never told what I did wrong. There was, there was no lead up. I have no memory of that other than I'm out mm. because of this relationship. You know, I'm got <laughs> to say something here. Karma, she can be a bitch, man. Yes. Mm. <laughs> because yes. because I was of that. when at the end of the Hawaii LTS that we were sent to along with Wayne and Kath and Melody, when YWAM is kind of trying to come in and prop up this whole thing at the uh, end of 1986, at the end of that, we thought, nah, this just is not what's happening here at last days is not right. We were told by Fran Paris on the international leadership team of Youth with a Mission, we were told that we were in sin and rebellion and that we needed to confess our sin. And mm-hmm. Martin and I said, what's our sin? What, right. what Tell us what our sin is. And what she said was, I don't know what your sin is, but if you will admit that you are in sin and rebellion, then God will reveal what the sin is. Now, Mm, that's a whole lot of mind fuckery, and it kind of sounds a little bit similar to what was done to you, Paul. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there's even more overlap to to that too. I think I mentioned to one or both of you in a prior conversation that after I left the ministry and was trying to heal from what happened and move on with my life, I made it a point to pray 
that that what happened to me specifically would never happen to Martin, to Wayne, and to Melody. Mm. So so I was, you know, even though I was hurting from it, but there was the thing is like I, nobody should go through the hell I went through. Nobody should mm-hmm. go through the hell I went through. I wish that yeah. on nobody. I wish that on nobody. I lost my friendship, all my friendships. I lost my job. I lost my church. I lost, you know, you everything's so wrapped up in this ball called living in a full-time ministry that's kind of cultish, right? So it's like the stakes are so high. so high. And the fall is so long and deep and treacherous and painful. So I wish that on nobody. So when Melody, the first thing that happened was Melody having that broken relationship. It was like, oh, man, she's probably going to have to leave the ministry, right? (laughs) That is my simple thought. And then I heard about you guys. What I had heard was that all of leadership was taken out of leadership, sent away, get your life straight, come back, and we'll see what happens. That was kind of the word on the street from where I was living. But then I heard your story, Sharon, and it was almost word for word. Don't talk to anybody, leave. And mm-hmm. um, it's like you're evil, like you are the devil incarnate. Right. And that's a practice that in organizations that we fundamentalists would have recognized as cults, like we used to say that Jehovah's Witnesses were cults, you know, the Mormons. I know the Amish practice a certain amount of shunning. Mm-hmm. So all of these organizations that do this shunning, and we would hear of this practice and think, oh, that's terrible. But we practice a form of this shunning ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. And it is crushing when this is your community and you're invested. Mm -hmm. You're so invested. And it's been great to hear your story from boyhood on. And you get a picture of just that young boy who just wants to please and do his part Mm -hmm. and is all in. Mm -hmm. And to think that we took precious hearts like that and just stomped on them is really heartbreaking and obviously a reason why we are doing these podcasts. Right. Because people who want to go down the path and argue the semantics of cult or high control or whatever you want to call it, this is trauma and this is spiritual abuse. And this was precious people. You know, you were not doing anything that you even knew to be doing wrong. Correct. Only wanted to do right. And we're Mm -hmm. so rejected for that. And Mm -hmm. it is, it is crushing that this story is not isolated. There's too many of you out there. I'm so sorry, Paul. It's just, it is, it's, it's horrible beyond words and you did not deserve that. you. You did not. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and you you had shared a little bit about this housemate. I want to come back to that. And for the listeners, we've made reference a few times that, you know, when we were eating dinner, still in the ranch house kitchen and then in that living room, we would meet in that open kitchen area for a house meeting where people would stand up. And if you, you know, needed to confess or ask for prayer, you could do it at that time. So it wasn't unusual that somebody would be standing up and sharing something from their life. And when you had mentioned that a couple of days ago, it flashed into my brain that night. And I think I had told you before, I don't even remember you leaving, Paul. I just remember mm-hmm. you in the track department giving me a hard time. Mm-hmm. I And then you were gone, but I didn't know all the details. But when you said that Martin stopped you in the middle of it and looked at Wayne, I I did remember that. 
And I remember more my emotional feeling of, oh, oh. <laughs> right. And, you know, that made, of course, everybody uncomfortable. And you could feel the tension in the room because in the way we were conditioned is we're going to side with leadership because we Absolutely. trust them and they have details about people that we don't have. Mm -hmm. And if Martin is stopping him, then Paul must have committed a serious sin that he's not willing to tell us. And this is what's making Martin come in and saying we have to stop him because he's blaming leadership. So that's how my brain, I mean, I, mm. it, it took me right back to mm. that mind that, you know, where I was at. And then to hear the details of the story is the other part of the terrible conditioning that everyone went to because we didn't get to go ask you, but I think you did share that some other people came up to you that night. Right. Just immediately after uh, a couple of the brothers just came up and hugged me because the, the ones I went to ICT with, they were the ones I was closest with. And they just whispered in my ear and said, don't believe a minute of any of this. Mm. Wow. But that, that only helped to a degree. It actually added confusion. Because I, yes. I had bought into how wicked I was. I had bought mm. into that I deserved to be kicked out for whatever reason. There wasn't actually any reason given as, we've, as we're talking about it here. But there was just what – this is what has been my sentence and I accepted it even though it drove me crazy and it violated me to the core. I felt that that's what has to happen to you to whatever, be purified mm. or sanctified or straightened out or whatever you want to call it. Well, we've internalized the message mm -hmm. that mm. the essence of who you are is sinful yep. and wicked and bad. And so when there's an accusation, you are primed to side with your accuser, mm -hmm. not mm. yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so true. And we were so conditioned in that. And then the ones of us watching on were also conditioned. There must be some wickedness. Right. And so what mm. I walked away with was just a ton of shame, right? Oh, I felt yeah. the message from Martin was the official ministry message and everybody would pick that up and think just that I was, that I wasn't a Christian, right? I was part of the ICT staff like you, Tracy, and there were people who had to leave during ICT, and the message was mm -hmm. they are not willing to follow God, so we had to ask them to leave. Mm -hmm. That was the message. That was the message. You're left as the listener to think, oh, my God, how wicked could this person have been to have to leave here? Right. Right. And to that point, there were many precious people through ICT that either weren't allowed to stay because they failed or we made them to leave. And it wasn't any of that. It's completely extra biblical. It was really more about you're not going to fit the model that we need mm -hmm. that will not question, that will toe the line and will basically be broken and become what we need you to be. That right. was really the message. You're not willing to be a quiet, mindless slave who will do as you're told, who will work six days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, and never question and never complain. So yes. if you don't fit that mold, you don't fit. Correct. And then we intertwine that with spiritual worth, which is the crime. That's the huge mm -hmm. crime. And right, right. so awful, awful. 
I was raised in a cult. Of course, if you'd have asked me all those years ago or anyone else in our small fundamentalist church if we were a cult, we'd have indignantly replied, absolutely not. Other groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're cults, but we're not a cult. Everything became normalized, though, but it wasn't until decades later, after I deconstructed my entire belief system and walked away from the Christian faith entirely, that I began to see just how cultish the whole thing actually was. But before all of that, for over 20 years, I'd served both as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, so I had a hand in it, furthering the toxicity also. So in the process of rebuilding my life and discovering my authentic identity, I've got lots to work through, things like religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, and just so much more. Join me, Dr. Clint Haycock, on the MindShift podcast as we take a look at such topics as cult tactics and psychology, religious trauma syndrome and religious addiction, taking your life back after leaving a cult or high-control group, and finally, dominion theology and the dangers posed by the Christian right not just in America, but indeed the world. You can find my show on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Who knows, it might just be time for a MindShift. Here's where uh, I think I wrote to both of you a while ago, just saying, I'd like to pick this subject up at some point. But these next two things I want to share are like, what do I do with that? those incidences now, right? So I have this dark night of soul thing. I feel like I'm going crazy. I have marbles spinning in my brain. I'm out at Dry Lake. We had a place up north in the property called Dry Lake. I'm there by myself crying out to God. Actually, it was the first time I've ever had a suicidal thought in my life. I said, Mm -hmm. God, if it doesn't get any better than this, if what I've done this whole time in my life isn't isn't worth anything, if this is what it's come to, then take me now. I don't want to live. That's what it came to. And so I went for another walk at the end of the runway. And it may be where you rode the horses, Sharon, to try to get out to the plane crash. Mm -hmm. Out to the end of the runway to the left, to the west, was like a wooded path. Yep. So I walked up that wooden path one day because I wasn't allowed to be around people still at this point. And I'm walking and all of a sudden I was transported to the woods directly behind my house on Long Island where I was raised. Whereas a kid, we lived in these woods, right? They were our, the woods was our friends. It was our home. And there was a spot that was identical, a little bit of a rise, trees covering, sun coming down. And I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, this feels like home. And all of a sudden I feel like God put his hand in my hand. And says, Mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, all of the craziness went away. All of the questioning went away. All of the, you know, the trauma at the moment feelings went away because all of a sudden I knew I was going to be okay. Because I didn't know what life was going to be like after the ministry. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I didn't have any money left. Right. And I had a car that was not running the best. So what do I do? Where do I go? Right. So almost like Dawn's story. Right. It's like, uh, if I want to leave, what would I do? Right. I was 26, almost 27 by then. So I I had been around a block a couple of times. So I knew how to do a lot of the practical things. But what was I going to do with my life? I committed to the Lord and now I'm kicked out of the Lord. Right. So I have that moment Mm -hmm. that everything was be okay. And then a couple of nights later, I was sitting on, I can't imagine where exactly it was. There's like a, a like a little hill behind second chapter of Axis property, like a little mm-hmm. knoll there. So I was sitting there and then it felt like God spoke to me. He says, he says something like, son, you're going to be okay. I want you to go to Daystar. You're going to go to Daystar. So I thought, okay. 
I mean, day store was equivalent back then of going to hell. <laughs> it, was, it was it was Christian counseling for the incorrigible and hopeless. <laughs> right, call it hell. I call it hell. Yeah. So so is the last thing I wanted. So there was no sentence given to me. I wasn't literally kicked off the property yet, but I knew that was coming up. Right, I knew I was going to have to leave. So I had all kinds of peace about that. So I'm upstairs. I was somehow doing something on a speaker in the ceiling in the hallway because I was now allowed to be working for for whatever reason. And Wayne comes up to me, looks up to me, and he says, Paul, I need to speak to you. Can you come to my office? And I go in there and I sit with him and he's crying. He's mm-hmm. choked up. He can't speak. He, he, he said, Paul, and he just, he couldn't speak. I said, Wayne, Wayne, it's okay. I know. You have to tell me I'm going to Daystar. It's okay. I know I'm supposed to go. And he just was you know, just flooded with relief. And he goes, I don't want you to go. This is why I think the story is a little different, Sharon, than what you perceived. He says, I don't want you to go, but it's been decided you need to. Mm. So that was my sentence. And, and at the same time, he said that I'm going to make sure that the ministry pays for your time up there. And they did. Okay. Whether Wayne did that with anybody else's blessings, I don't know. But from his heart to mine, I know that he didn't want me to go. He wanted me. He he really liked me. And again, I shared that a little bit earlier. We had we stayed in touch over the years, and of course, we worked together the last two years of his life. Well, yeah, and it's not just a matter of liking you, which is great. People who worked alongside of you could tell your heart, mm. right? You're you're there. We're side by side. We're in the trenches. You're bringing a smile to people. You're. And Wayne, especially if he worked with you in the school, it's like you can tell when there's like a hidden part of a dark heart that's mm. under the surface that we can't seem to crack. And you didn't have that, Paul. And so no. that's why the story <laughs> has blown <laughs> my you. mind mm. from the beginning because, yes, I worked in the school. And, yes, I know we came across what we would call some hard cases that we were not equipped to handle. We mm. were not equipped to handle what we were handling. But you had none of those qualities. And so that's why it is a mind-blowing story to me. I want to ask a question, though. I'm curious about this, and I have some theories, perhaps. (laughs) So, Paul, when you felt that God was speaking to you to go to Daystar, Mm -hmm. did you then tell that to anyone? No. So when Wayne, when you're meeting with Wayne, and he is getting there to talk to you, to tell you that you're going to go to Daystar. Mm-hmm. He had not said that to you before, and you had not said anything to anyone. That is correct. So, you know, I'm not religious. <laughs> and you know, I'm not, I don't believe in the Bible box. I don't believe in the heaven, hell, mm-hmm. redemptive death and resurrection of Jesus like I used to. Do not believe in that. Mm-hmm. But I have experienced enough things I don't know how to describe it other than connectedness that sometimes transcends time and transcends verbal or physical communication and things that would seem inexplicable that we labeled, well, this is God speaking to us, or this is the Holy Spirit, or this is, you know, because it fit within the box Mm -hmm. of what we believed. And The thing that's been really interesting to me, Paul, is that as I have shed and left behind 
those, I'm going to say, childish and foolish beliefs, that sense of occasional connectedness and knowing and transcendent, I don't even know what to call it, but those instances have still occurred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's led me to believe and conclude that there is this reality that we can be a part of, whether you want to call it the universe or mm-hmm. or what whatever. And we can be connected and in the flow of it. And it's not the God that we used to label it, but it still is something. Correct. And so when you were telling me that story about this sense of hearing, I'm going to go to Daystar, and then a couple of days later, Wayne says to you, we want you to go to Daystar, course, it could have just been, in a sense, coincidence because, you know, that's where we're going to ship people off to. But mm-hmm. I don't know. When you feel it that profoundly and strongly, mm-hmm. I tend to think it's something more and something beyond. Mm-hmm. Oh, for real. Yes. And many of our queer brothers and sisters have that same story as well. They come to the end of, I'm awful, Many can come to the point of suicidal ideation, and they hear what we would have called that still small voice Mm -hmm. that we always attributed to the Holy Spirit, also reaching in to them and saying, no, you're perfect the way you are. And that's how more and more are coming out and having that story to say, you fundies who want to take and shame, I've already heard a voice inside of me. And mm-hmm. yeah, where is that outside of us, inside of us? I don't know, but I have also experienced it is not in the confines of that interpretation. And when we have had some back and forth with some people still in that community, they use those experiences as proof texts that what they believe is correct about everything. Right. And I think one of the things that's so surprising is, hey, when you walk out of that box, Sharon, you've often talked about it as a cage. When mm-hmm. you walk out of that cage, it's almost like it ramps up instead of goes away. Right. Right. Yeah, the cage in the box is this predefined set of rules and the ways things are done versus it's like the difference between knowing and unknowing, Mm. right? It's like, there's so much more we don't know, but if we think we know it all, we're going to lose out on the most, uh, most of the information that's ever available to us. Well, to put it in Christianese terms, it's the difference between the law and love. Right. Right. Yeah. So those moments, they were really tender. um, And, I end up leaving. Uh, it was really interesting. I didn't have money to get to Daystar, but somehow I found out that one of the brothers there, Brad, who worked in operations, had a family member who was driving up right through Indiana. And so I got to ride up there for like $10 worth of gas. So, <laughs> And I got there on the eve of my birthday, which would have been my 27th birthday. Mm-hmm. So it was a new life. And my very first conversation there with my counselor, I went to him and I said, okay, tell me what the rules are. (laughs) What are the rules of being here? Smart, smart. (laughs) And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He says, it's simple here. Do whatever you know you can do and don't do what you know you shouldn't. 
And I said, <laughs> you're funny. Oh, I, you don't take, strike me as someone who's going to have a sense of humor, right? So come on, serious. This is a serious conversation. I'm here to start my life over again. Tell me what the rules are. And he cackles. The guy cackles. It's so funny. And he says, seriously, do whatever you feel you're free to do and don't do what you know you're, you're free not to. So I was lost. I was absolutely lost. Yeah, as as many of us would be, because when you've been so conditioned and indoctrinated and turned upside down inside, mm-hmm. that's really hard. That's really hard to know what to do. Yeah. So anyway, I was at Daystar for almost seven years until it burned down in the middle of the night in 1989. Oh. Ironically enough, not too shortly after I was there, I started a relationship with a woman. And this is another one of those moments, like my hearing God say that I'm going to Daystar. Again, I had the same mindset. I said, God, I suck at this relationship thing. I suck at it. I can't choose worth a damn. So my prayer was, do to me like you did with Adam. Put me to sleep. You don't have to take a rib, (laughs) but put me to sleep. And when I wake up, have her be standing there. And that, in essence, is what happened. Wow. Because the woman that I ended up dating and marrying, well, we didn't really date. We're in the same building. But I had a physical and emotional breakdown from everything that happened. And I went to a doctor a month or two after I went to Daystar. And so I was put into bed rest. And this woman that was there at the ministry, she was a bit older than I was, had pity on me. She didn't like me. I didn't like her at first when we met. She thought I was cocky and I thought she was arrogant. We just didn't like each other at all. But she had <laughs> she had pity on me. So she would come into my room. We had individual rooms there. It was a 100,000 square foot building. It was a turn of the century mineral water spa that the rich and the famous used to come to in Indiana because of the stinky sulfur water. They had a bunch of bathtubs lined up that they would sit in to get healed in. So that's what this building was. So it had it was like a hotel, but the rooms were kind of small. It was just individual rooms, shared bathrooms down the hallway. So anyway, she had pity on me. So she would come and bring food and she'd literally walk in, drop the food on the table and say, here you go and walk away. So after a, a week or so of, of bed rest in that, I had, that's what it was in that bed rest when I sent that prayer to God. I woke up one morning. She came in, gave me the meal. I looked at her and she looked at me and I looked at her and I said, Oh no. And I said, You too? And she goes, Yes. Cause in that moment, I felt like God said, Here she is. You asked for her. Here she is. And again, we did not care so much for each other at that moment. So I said, all right, we're out of here. I'm going to take a, we're going to take a walk. I took it to the city park and I made it impossible for that to be true. This is my prayer of faith. I said, Donna, her name is Donna. We're going to pray to God now. I said, God, if this is really you, which we can't imagine how it is, we're going to go back to the ministry and talk to our counselors who just happen to be a husband and wife team. And we're going to go back to them and tell them what just happened between us and what we felt, what my prayer was and what Donna felt. And we're going to say that to them. And they're going to say, about time you figured it out. We knew it all along. That was my prayer. Impossible, impossible to be true. So we walk back, we gather them. We go into what's called the small dining room. I say what I'm saying. Now Peter cackles. He goes, about time you figured it out. We knew it all along. And we're just both sitting there stunned. It was like, oh my gosh, what do you do with that? Yeah, what do you do with that? Well, we got married. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> In retrospect, do you think that was the right thing for you? Oh, boy. But you put mm. the right word on it now, it makes it tough. Okay, good point. Good point. Right? So I think it was path for me. The path. That's so much better, Paul. You're right. It was path. So we we were married almost 31 years. We have three amazing sons, in which now all of them have given me grandkids. I've got six now. The latest coming wow. was past, this past Saturday. So yeah, I would say it was path. We both had the same wound, even though we didn't call it that then, the absent male. Mm-hmm. Her father worked nights. The mom had to be the dad and the mom. My dad was legally blind and just never really paid attention to us, wasn't part of things except for to deliver the punishment. When my mom was mad, he delivered it because he was mad at us for making her mad because that made his life hard. So, yeah, so we had we had similar wounding and we were both just really kind, I think, people and gentle people. When our marriage ended and when we looked at it and when we were going through our struggles at the end, kind of un- unwinding that God moment in the beginning, because we both had started down a path away from fundamentalism and the beliefs that we had. And we call, what I called it was that our relationship had become what I called the demilitarized zone. And if you're mm-hmm. not familiar with Vietnam, it was a space between the North and South where it was almost like a war wasn't happening. Right. So it's like we never got emotionally honest and real with each other. We just didn't, neither one of us did anything to poke the bear. And we had a really kind relationship. Like it was not a bragging point, but we would both say to our kids that you never heard us raise our voice with each other, have you? No, you've never seen us argue with each mm-hmm. other. Right. And they said, yeah, we never saw it. Well, we didn't even argue when you weren't around. So there was an emotional safety in where we both were coming from that that worked. You know what? I, I totally get that because that was a lot of what my first marriage was for quite a while. And part of it was our personal brokenness, our jagged pieces fit together well. Uh, we we complemented one another <laughs> in our in our woundedness. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe where I'll introduce where I started moving away from my more fundamental beliefs. Yeah. So up until this time, you said you both were kind of moving away. We well, no. Well, at the very end, when we decided to separate, we separated for about a year. It was only supposed to be for a week, and then two weeks, and then four weeks. We were seeing three counselors at the same time because Tracy is so much like your story, right? I, I married in essence out of obedience. Mm-hmm. Right. Did I love her? Yeah, as much as I knew how to. But was it from the core of my being? Uh uh. No, Mm -hmm. there there was just some piece missing that was not what I think was possible. Right. I think there could be more. So that's what it felt like. And we both kind of felt that. So what happened? We were attending, I think, the largest church in, in Eugene, Oregon. And actually, Keith played there, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s, a place called Faith Center. And I was on the church board. It was like a four or 5,000 member church. And I was on leadership there. I had been on the worship team. I had been a, a day pastor where people come in. I'd help people out. I, you know, I had a lot of responsibility and I was uh, seen as a leader in the church. And, but we both just thought, you know, we got to do something different. This isn't working. 
The church was very broad. It, they got ostracized by other Christians because they allowed homosexuals in and gay people in. They let they were welcomed into this church. It was a Jesus people church is how it started. You know, come as you are is what it was. Come as you are. And then they added years later, but just don't stay that way. Right, right. Right. right? <laughs> that, that, that got added on later. Yeah. So within that framework, a friend of mine who's actually one of my friends and lives in the same town I live in now, he started teaching a class called the Hebraic Roots of the Christian Faith. So this was the first time I have ever listened or, or heard anything different about Scripture than it was all theology. So he started talking about how the people who were the early hearers, the first hearers of these words, would see this as poetry, as story, and not as theology. And he started breaking it all down. And and as the class ended, it was like four or five weeks. I looked at Donna and we both said the same words at the same time. We've been ripped off. Hmm. Wow. So there was just this sense that we missed. We've been living this deeply fundamental fear-based life. We're living this controlled life. What's really underneath us, right? What's really within us? Mm-hmm. So we have now this theological boost, so to speak, this biblical boost. Well, biblical meaning this is a guy talking about the Old Testament and how, how the early hearers would have heard it. It's like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So it just blew up from there. This guy said, Paul, do you really want to go down these rabbit holes? I got a lot of information for you, but I don't know if you're ready for it. And I said, well, bring it on because I don't want to stay where I am. (laughs) What year was this, Paul? What year was this? This would have been 2007, 2008. Okay. So I've been on this movement for about 15 years away from fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So everything from Rob Bell, who was very well known there. I got a, a Hebrew prayer book. I started learning some Hebrew and reading it. It had the English next to it, but I was trying to figure out the Hebrew. I was just really getting into a little bit of what was called Messianic Christianity, just because it seemed like more life to me than what I was reading, because all of a sudden now the stories could come to life, as opposed to, ooh, what's the theology there? Mm. Such a huge, huge, huge difference. And this pastor's name is Steve. He introduced me to all kinds of things, the church fathers. He introduced me to other pastors, other actually to a rabbi in town. We went to a meeting with a rabbi. So I'm having this amazing conversation and interaction with this guy. And I walk away from this moment. And I said, if there's only two people on the planet, me and this rabbi, and only one of them knows God, when I walked into the building, I knew it wasn't me and not him, right? He doesn't know God because he's not a Christian, right? So I'm thinking, if only one of us knew God, it was him. I'm, I'm not who I think I am. It was moments like that that just exploded in my brain. Like these little landmines went off inside of me saying, you don't know what you think you know. And there's a lot you don't know. So I just begin doing an honest exploration of things. Hmm. So it was like almost like the YWAM last days thing, right? The main thing is knowing God and making him known, right? That was one of the core tenets. And I thought knowing God meant you had to figure God out. So up at this point, just before that, I thought that I had God figured out. And I looked at myself one day and I said, oh, my gosh, if I have God figured out, that's got to mean that he's just a little bit smaller than me because I got my arms around him. (laughs) And so therefore, that can't be God either. So as soon as all those things became unraveled, Right. It wasn't the teaching. It was like a circular teaching. I don't know if it was Winky Prattney who did it, whatever. But in the middle was God. And then around that was us. And then our family and our children and the community and blah, blah, blah. 
So with God being the core and that core now being blown up inside little bit by bit, everything in my life at that point was held together by that. Mm -hmm. So now that that's blown up, everything in my life, I mean, everything in my life is now up for question. And even that of my marriage, because we got married because of the story was God told us to get married. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that cracking of the door, that pinprick of light coming through Mm -hmm. is both terrifying, utterly terrifying, and the most liberating thing simultaneously, I think. Mm -hmm. Both are true. It doesn't have to be either or. I mean, it doesn't be one or the other. It can be both. Hmm. And that's not what we're trained. We're trained into binaries. We have to make enemies out of someone else to encourage or force people to stay with us or else they're going to become the enemy. And nobody wants to be the enemy, right? That's kind of the psychology of it. We create the other. And there was no other. There is no other. Jesus's whole message is, come on, guys, we're one. It's one. It's oneship. And there was nothing about the theology that we learned that was about oneship. Mm-hmm. It was about duality. It was about black and white, right, wrong, Christian, non-Christian, you know? The flesh and the spirit. Right. So if that was kind of the first pebble mm-hmm. in this rock pile that you would build of significant stones, what were some of the others? Mm. You know, I think one of the most... Well, I called it coming home. I uh, ended up seeing an intimacy coach and I, I had some issues that we wanted to address and they weren't, those weren't sexual issues at that moment, but there was issues I wanted to address. And the first thing they did with me is did a seated meditation where they walked me through closing my eyes, feeling my feet on the floor, feeling my thighs and my bottom on the chair, feeling the back of the chair, you know, feeling my body for God's sake. We've been told to exit our bodies, to exit everything that was what we felt in touch within us. At least that's why I interpret it. It's like you had to crucify all that. Crucify the flesh. Mm-hmm. Crucify yes. the flesh. I can't tell you how other this was. I didn't want to leave this space. We then got on the floor and spooned with each other. And she had me, we were fully clothed, we're on the floor. She had me put my hand in her belly. And she says, when my belly expands, breathe with me. When I release, breathe with me. We went back and forth. We did that in alternate places. So not only was I feeling my own body, now I'm feeling the presence of another. This was stunning. This was stunning. I walked out of there and says, I don't want to leave this place. This is home. It's the only word I could come up with. I felt like I came back home. And this was nothing more than being in contact with my body alone and then with another person in contact with my body. I had Mm. never felt anything like that. I mean, we we made three kids and we had a lot of sex. I never felt anything like that. That was nothing even close to that. Nothing even close to that. Wow. So that was one of the situations. Yeah, another one was, again, a theological thing. I, I ended up talking to the pastor, and I said, you know, as I look at the Bible now through a different lens, I see what we practice in the church here and in a lot of churches, what I call elimination theology. And what I meant by that was, who are you of? Well, we're of, you know, we're of Jacob. No, we're of whatever. It's, it's like everybody was trying to make it down to you can only be from this small lineage. It's like it's all about who can be eliminated. And the story of Jesus is like we're one. He didn't hang out with the religious people. He went everywhere else. He went to the other mountain. He went in, into where the demons were chained to a tree. He went all the wrong places, right? 
So somehow the theology that I had taken on as my own was about everybody being other and different, other and different. And so I challenged myself. I said, what's the most wild thing I could do? I could go to the Saturday market in Eugene, Oregon. That is where the hippies are. Everything's tie-dye. They wear sandals. Women don't shave their underarms. Everybody smells different, right? It's just like this is another world. I lived there for 27 years and never would go there because I couldn't be around otherness. Wasn't the church telling me that? I told me that. This is what I adopted. So I made it a point to go there. And I went there every Saturday for the whole summer. And I learned that like an Abigail story, as I was recovering, as when I got divorced, everybody in my church that was my friends and my neighbors, and we were there 27 years by that point, they all refused to talk to me. They all never spoke oh, to me again. Oh, my God. So when I divorced, I lost everything. I mean, everything. So this group, group of potters and people who tie-dye toilet paper, I mean, you name it. <laughs> They literally do that. They have tie-dyed toilet paper. These people embraced me. These people loved me. And one of them, her name was Amy. I met her really early on. We're still friends to this day. After uh, the summer, she came up to me. She goes, well, did you figure it out yet? And I said, what's that? And she goes, we're all the same. We're all human. We're not less. We're not more. We are just human. And we just love people. It, it was pretty incredible. You know, like the people who slept in the house with Abigail, this was a similar thing. This became my new friend group mm. because I, I lost all the other ones. Right. You know, and, and it wasn't my choice that they go away. But part, you know, I, I got to be, I guess, I guess I got to be fair here. There was a part of me, just like when I left last days, when I left my position at the church, when we separated and divorced, I didn't want to be around them anymore either. My theology had changed pretty much by then because I lived what I called vow to vow, right? Everything we did was vow to vow. You make this commitment now and it's lifelong. We committed when we got married, we would never use the word divorce. Never. Mm -hmm. We eliminated from vocabulary. And it was actually Donna who in a counseling session said, I need a divorce. And I, and I broke down. It's like, you can't ask for that. We don't get an out. We don't have an out. We don't. We committed to this. So I was, I, was, I was so broken by that, but I finally realized, you know what? Because my counselor asked me, she said, Paul, forget about your vow to vow thing. What if today, what if just right now today in your true heart, if I asked you, if you would marry her today, would you do it? I said, no, I wouldn't. She says, so why are you still holding on? I said, because I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow, right? So I lived in this this funny space. And so finally I agreed to the divorce, but again, it cost me, it, it cost me everything. It was, it was my second dark night of the soul through that process. Mm. I, my kids, yeah, wow. my children, I, I was a worship leader in the church. And one time when my boys were little, like six, seven, and eight, I was sitting on a stool and they were wrapped around me, all three of my boys. And I sang a song that was called, I want to be like you because they want to be like me. And when I divorced, they had the come to Jesus meeting with me or when we were separated and the divorce was coming up. How old were they? They would have been in their mid-20s. Okay. They told me, you don't understand what you've done. You were God to us. You were Jesus to us. Now you're none of those things. And my oldest son said, I don't even know if I can love you anymore. 
Oh my gosh, Paul. Wow. It was it was unthinkable. And to be fair, I did underestimate the impact. I think two of them were married or one was married for sure. The other one was engaged and my other son wasn't. He was still living in the area. But I did not know the impact that it would have on them at that point. I just didn't. Did you and your wife, I mean, did you tell them together they're all adults or was it, was it just you? Oh, no, we both. My oldest son was living in Seattle and my other two sons were in the area. So we sat down in the house and told our two sons together. And then my oldest son, we made a trip and we met with them and told them there. So did the blame, it sounds like, did the blame? Yes. Follow me. Fall on you. It did. It did. And, and actually it was, it was, it was kind of ugly. My oldest son, who was the most like me, he actually called one of the pastors of the church and said that I had brainwashed Donna mm. in the ways that we were going. And again, she was a willing participant in in a lot of these different things that we were learning. She was starting her own journey and we were both questioning what it was that we knew, what it was we believed. So they didn't know that we had moved that center, right? The center of God is holding it all together. They didn't know that that had moved. So that left them where? That, yeah. just, that just broke them. Yeah. And we, um, Sharon and I did the purity culture um, episodes. I know that you listened to, but yes. we haven't really unpacked the divorce topic. And I know that's something that we said that we were going to do a deep dive mm. because even all the things that you're referencing, that's such a big topic and how you even arrive at that decision and the impact mm-hmm. on family. Mm-hmm. So we have that on our list to do. And so definitely want to invite you back at some point and kind of unpack some of that. Sure. Because uh, we won't do it justice uh, in, right. in this episode. But right. all that to say, I think when your family is living vow to vow, like you describe, mm-hmm. it is love the visual of blowing up that center and there is fallout. And mm-hmm. I, I take it that you're still healing from some of that fallout, as I think Sharon said in a previous episode to someone, we're all still healing. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 For sure. It's one of the things my counselors worked with me on is that I have, I've had this arrival mindset, right? That Mm. if I do this, this, and this, and I think we're taught that when you get to some point, then for me, it was that I'll be good enough, right? Or accepted or be good enough to be on staff if it was last day's ministries or be good enough to be accepted into the school or be good enough to stay on to second term. Be good enough to be the leader in second term. Be good enough to whatever it is, right? So there's this thing that says, if you do X, you're almost guaranteed this because you arrived. And I've learned that that's almost like putting the eternalness of our beingness into this box, which is such a limiter. It's such a limiter. So I've learned, and I'm learning still, to not have those arrival things, to take all Mm -hmm. of life as the next breath the next step, the next thing you'll learn. Because we'll never learn it all. That's a ridiculous thing to even think you could do. Right. That's why I love what you two are doing. I'm learning so much more about my experience because I did it all under the cover of my own experience and didn't share it with other people, right? I didn't know anybody that's gone through it. So hearing your stories and Abigail's stories and and Dawn's stories, because I know you, it's just like, this is so... 
helpful to know other people went through it, felt similar things. And it's okay to feel those things. And it's okay to, to feel things today that I didn't feel yesterday. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's this unfolding into the unknown, the unknown. We don't want to, we're taught to know. And it's, I think, getting comfortable with the not knowing is so healing. It's okay. It's okay not to know. It's okay not to know if it was really God's will. It's okay to not know if I was supposed to do that. It's okay. We just have so much weight put on it with this theology and this church structure and this rightness and wrongness of it. It's just damaging. It's damaging. Yeah, the finding the ability to be comfortable with uncertainty it's a super scary thing to kind of like, you you almost feel like you're looking over the abyss and you don't Mm -hmm. know how far down Mm -hmm. it goes. Absolutely. And you wonder, are you going to fall and fall and fall and never find the bottom? And for me, it was more like you take a step out and you realize you actually start to fly. That's what it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. Right. At first, I called it jumping without a net. Yeah. No guarantees. Everything about what we had before is guarantees, right? We didn't talk about some theology things, right? I went through all kinds of different churches and you have a choice. Do you want to believe in the, it's, it's you know, once saved, always saved, but you can choose. I, I went through enough churches like, nah, you know, is it just by faith or is faith and works or once saved, always saved. So this isn't a system. Right. <laughs> this is life. This is breath. What, what do they say, that light casts out dark? One day I was laying down on the ground, and it was nighttime. And I'm looking up at all the stars, and you see a couple of shooting stars, and I realized, you know what? Darkness shows you things that the light could never show you. Yes. Wow. Yes, it does. We only like it one way. Right. And you miss the other. Mm-hmm. One of the most awe-inspiring moments of my life we didn't go on vacations as kids. We didn't have much money, but we went to the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania and my parents rented a cabin with another family. We went up there and there was a meteorite shower going on and we were above the tree line on top of the mountains and we were in the middle of this meteor shower. It felt like they were falling around us. I never felt so disembodied and so odd. And I'm like 14 years old and I'm thinking, I never want to leave this place. What is this? It was quiet. Nobody's saying anything. The universe is putting on this incredible display that if you were doing something else, you would miss it. So being silent, being open, going into the dark, who knows what you're going to see? Who knows what you're going to find? What just beautiful and powerful imagery, Paul, like a parable of what real life is. Yes, yes, it is. And so I think this is a beautiful place to end this. I do want to say that this is not the last we're going to hear from Paul. (laughs) It's been especially wonderful for Sharon and I to reconnect with him as a brother who has come out of the same commune setting that we've come out of, mm-hmm. able to relate to some of the same lessons that we've all experienced. We have started a Facebook community page just to start more conversations. And I think, Paul, you've been active on that already, I there, see. 
Very active, very active. Part One of my gifts is to create community and comfort and belonging. So yeah, I've been reaching out to people who just put a thing out there and I just say, hi, welcome, or re- react, interact with them. I just love it. This is the space I've been looking for to be able to move into spaces like this. Well, wonderful. So do you have any places that you are on social media besides coming onto the community Facebook page that you wanted to share or call out? I, I'm really not. But what I did do, if somebody wants to connect with me through this, I created a, a separate email account called daring to be me at gmail.com. Cool. Mm. <laughs> and it's spelled out like it sounds, except for there's no E in the B because that was already taken. <laughs> we'll put it in our show notes, Paul, so people can click on that if they'd like. Great. And um, is there any final parting message or thought you'd like to share? Mm. Yeah, I guess it would say, I would say that a lot of what we all went through is because one of the basic core human needs is belonging. Mm. And we all know and feel we need to belong. And we join and are part of these things to try to meet that need. And that need is presence, but it becomes polluted and distorted when it gets put into a religious setting that says, you don't belong until you do this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. You are the outside. And that's the only thing I directly repented to all my boys about. I said, I told you that you weren't good as you were, that you needed something to come inside you to make you better. I was wrong. I am sorry. You were always Good. You are always enough. You always belong. Oh, Paul. Oh, that is so beautiful. It just gave me chills because that is that is the essence of love. That is the essence of the message of love that we were all longing for. We found a counterfeit, but it's beautiful to be finding the real thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and on the lighthearted side, I don't know if you guys have seen the Barbie movie yet, but that's yes. the message of the Barbie movie. And I <laughs> all I'm seeing is you, Paul, in a shirt that says, I'm Knuff. I'm Knuff. I'm going to change my email address. Hold on. <laughs> I think it's probably already taken. <laughs> it's probably already taken, but we, you know, with the beauty of AI... I can put Paul in a shirt like that. So uh, I love make it. sure do it, you girl, check do it. on our Instagram account, feetofclay.cultsisters, because we put up some fun and funny and heartwarming messages as well that follow these episodes. And I think we want to see Paul in a I am Knuff. So. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Do me. Make it so. <laughs> she shall. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for listening. And... Tell your friends about us, rate us, leave a review that helps other people find our podcast. We appreciate all of you out there. And jump over to the community page and talk more to Paul. Bye. Bye.